broadcasting from the studios of Ave Maria Radio in Ann Arbor, Michigan, Al Cresta is ready for conversations of consequence. This is Cresta in the Afternoon. And good afternoon to you all. Happy Tuesday and Happy New Year. And welcome to the final day of our 2023 Cresta in the Afternoon countdown. And in this hour, we have number two. In the next hour, we'll get to number one. But let's just talk about what's coming up in this hour. We will be exploring the spiritual life of J.R.R. Tolkien with Holly Ordway. Uh, September 2nd of last year, uh, 2023, marked 50 years since Tolkien's death. Uh, Since his death, Lord of the Rings has been translated into dozens of languages, uh, several different adaptions, um, uh, and, you know, radio dramas and film and stuff like that. Uh, Obviously, the most famous would be Peter Jackson's film trilogy, which is one of the most successful film series of all times, both critically and financially. We uh, won't say anything at this time about the Hobbit trilogy. But Tolkien was a man of deep faith. But most biographers have been reluctant to explore that faith. And there's some different reasons why that is. And uh, Holly Ordway is going to be joining us to explain that and look just more about how Tolkien's faith influenced his writings and what it meant to him. She's the author, most recently, of Tolkien's Faith, A Spiritual Biography, outstanding book that just came out last year. And is also the author of Tolkien's Modern Reading, Middle Earth Beyond the Middle Ages. That second book received the 2022 Mythopoex uh, Scholarship Award in Inkling Studies. Holly's other book is Not God's Type, An Atheist Academic Lays Down Her Arms. But a Holly, who is also Senior Fellow of Faith and Culture at the Word on Fire Institute, and um, holds a PhD in English from the University of Massachusetts Amherst, is a subject editor for the Journal of Inkling Studies. So she spent a lot of time thinking about Tolkien, uh, who he was, what he believed, and how those beliefs influenced his uh, very vast breadth of writing. And she joins us in this hour. That's coming up after this news break. Thank you, Bryant, and good afternoon, everyone. This is your Ave Maria Radio News for Tuesday, January 2nd. It's the Feast of St. Basil the Great. And today's news is brought to you by Ave Maria Family of Funds at AveMariaFunds.com. At least 48 people are dead after a powerful magnitude 7.6 earthquake hit western Japan on the first day of the new year. In London, NBC News' Megan Fitzgerald says there is so much destruction. Homes and buildings flattened, private roads and streets buckled, some neighbors returning to their home to get a first look at what the devastation looks like for them. Thousands of buildings are damaged, and officials are warning of more quakes possible to come. More than 100 aftershocks have already been recorded. In response to Monday's quake, Japan's prime minister has dispatched 1,000 soldiers to disaster areas to help in rescue efforts. Pope Francis is marking the one-year anniversary of the death of Pope Benedict XVI. During Pope Francis's Sunday address, he said Pope Benedict XVI lovingly and wisely served the Catholic Church. He then asked his audience to honor Benedict with a round of applause. Benedict was Pope from 2005 until 2013. He died on December 31, 2022, at the age of 95. Jimmy Lai pleaded not guilty today to all charges leveled against him. He faces several charges related to violating national security following his 2020 arrest. Jonathan Price, a member of Lai's legal team, said on Tuesday morning that the pathetically flimsy nature of these charges is becoming plain for all to see. And 2024 is a leap year, giving us an extra day on the calendar. 
The day gets tacked on to the end of February every four years, with some exceptions to keep our dates in sync with the seasons. While there are 365 days in a year, it actually takes about 365 and a quarter days for the Earth to travel around the sun. February 29th takes that extra time into account. From the AveMariaRadio.net news desk, I'm Dan McGraw. The best, 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 best of Crest in the Afternoon countdown. Number two. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. The Lord of the Rings is a worldwide bestseller. It's been translated into more than 50 languages, from Arabic and Chinese to Thai and Turkish. The film adaptations are loved by millions who have never read the book. Amazon's The Rings of Power uh, was the most expensive television series ever made, with a second season in the works. And yet, the contrast between author and audience is stark. Tolkien was a devout Catholic of a traditionalist mindset. He prayed to God in Latin, had a devotion to the Blessed Mother, called the Eucharist the one great thing to love on earth, and yet most of his readership has no belief in or even basic knowledge of these things. Hopefully that's changing with the publication of Holly Ordway's Tolkien's Faith, a spiritual biography. Holly is... uh, fellow of faith and culture at the Word on Fire Institute and visiting professor of apologetics at Houston Christian University. She holds a doctorate in English from the University of Massachusetts Amherst and is subject editor for the Journal of Inkling Studies. Her other books include Tolkien's Modern Reading, uh, Middle Earth Beyond the Middle Ages, which received the 2022 Mythopoeic Scholarship Award in Inkling Studies, and her uh, memoir, called Not God's Type, an atheist academic lays down her arms. You can follow her on Twitter at Holly Ordway, H-O-L-L-Y-O-R-D-W-A-Y. Holly, good to have you back here. Thank you. Oh, it's my pleasure. What a great piece of work. Did you love it? Thank Did you. you love it? Did you love the work? Yes, it was utterly exhausting and occupied every ounce of my energy, and I loved every minute of doing it. <laughs> oh, I loved every minute I spent reading through it, and I tell you, uh, this is probably going to, ch- I would hope this is going to change uh, attitudes. I, I know, going back to, the, I read the Humphrey Carpenter biography a long time ago, and I was surprised that he didn't say as much uh, as I thought was important about Tolkien's faith. But why, why is that? Why have biographers generally missed it? Well, I think partly it's because his first biographer, Humphrey Carpenter, simply didn't understand his faith at all. Carpenter himself, when he wrote the, uh, the biography, <clears throat> was uh, not a believer. Um, he came from an Anglican family. In fact, his, his father was the um, Anglican Bishop of Oxford. Oh. And he had a bit of a chip on his shoulder about religion in general, about Oxford in general, um, and he was an atheist when he was working on um, this book. And so he, I think in his, in his own way, he tries to be fair to Tolkien. He acknowledges that Tolkien has a strong Catholic faith, but he absolutely doesn't understand it, and he's not terribly interested. And so he just sort of mentions it and, and moves on as if it's just a purely private and personal thing. Mm-hmm. And other scholars have, have more or less just picked up on this. Um, and quite shockingly, there's even um, a major biographer, Raymond Edwards, who literally relegates all discussion of Tolkien's faith to an appendix. <laughs> talk, about, <laughs> talk about compartmentalizing the faith, right? Wow, wow. And that's 
exactly the opposite of Tolkien's actual experience. He was anything but compartmentalized. And that's been, but that's been the, the assumption. And also, people have just not known enough about his cultural context. What was it like to be an English Catholic yep. in the early 20th century? Yeah. And, and so it's been, it's been all too easy to just kind of brush past it. Oh, yeah, he was a Catholic or he was a Christian. Fine, that's nice. Move on. Yeah. When, in fact, it was really fundamental to his identity. Well, let's go back to his family of origin. Uh, you write that on his father's side, most of the Tolkien's were Baptists. Um, he, he was uh, J.R.R. Tolkien was baptized in the Anglican Church, I believe. Yes. Yeah. His mother's side had Methodist the Unitarians. Um, how did his parents, though, became pretty convicted Anglicans, didn't they? Yes, um, we don't know a lot about you know their early you know faith formation, but we do know that they were married in the Anglican Church um, in South Africa, where um, his father had taken a job. And in fact, Mabel was baptized in the Anglican Church because evidently her father, being Unitarian, she had never been baptized in the Triune mm. name. Mm-hmm. And so we can see early on with Mabel's adult baptism and with the couple's involvement. Um, in the Anglican Church in Bloemfontein, that they were serious about their faith. Um, they had made a faith commitment to the Anglican Church, as it happened, and baptized, you know, their you know their son was born. Um, and it's in that context of taking the faith seriously that we see then Mabel a few years later as now having lost her husband, you know, she's now a widow, um, and she becomes drawn to the Catholic Church Probably through the Oxford movement um, is what I I worked out in my in my research. Yeah, you know the influence but, of Newman, the Oxford movement. Uh, but, but she's taking wi- the faith very seriously. She's a widow. I mean, she, yeah. So she's already marginalized a bit. I mean, becoming Catholic marginalizes her even further, right? Yes, and we can see why Tolkien had such a great admiration for his mother's strength of faith, and he he calls her a martyr to the faith. And that's more understandable, indeed, when you see this context, because she was very vulnerable as, as a widow. She was dependent on her, her extended family, you know, helping her out financially. To become a Catholic was to make a very downward social move. Yeah. Um, yeah. It was to be very much, you know, socially ostracized, socially disadvantaged. And her family was appalled, and they cut off financial support to try to pressure her to come back into the faith. And so, therefore, <clears throat> therefore, she's, you know, having to deal with poverty and strain with her family. And it would have been so easy for her to say, well, okay, I'll come back to right. the Anakin faith or, you know, to make some sort of compromise. But she holds firm at great personal cost. And this, I think, is what Tolkien really notices, even as a boy, that she had become convinced that, you know, that the Catholic Church was the one church. She entered into it, and she stayed. Yeah. And she also tried to preserve good relations. She still continued to write to, you know, her family, to communicate with them. So she really tried to live out this sort of conciliatory role without giving up her faith. She's an amazing woman. After her death, what becomes of her children? Well, they're now orphans, completely. Um, so Tolkien, at age 12, had lost both of his parents. And Mabel had entrusted Tolkien and his little brother, Hilary, um, to the guardianship of Father Francis Morgan, who is a priest of the Birmingham Oratory. 
and he becomes their guardian. And more than a guardian, he really becomes what Tolkien later called a second father. Mm-hmm. You know, he, he loves the boys. He looks after them. He, he spends out of his personal funds to help educate them and, and look after them. And he also brings them into a larger community at the Birmingham Oratory. It's not just Father Francis. There's a whole community of 15 or 20 fathers who become mentors, you know, kind of older brothers and father figures hmm. that Tolkien is able to learn from. So he becomes, so Tolkien becomes part of that, I mean, community in the, in the broader sense. He's... Yes, and in fact, he, he says he became almost a junior inmate of the oratory house. <laughs> And wow. here's a really interesting thing, that he becomes involved, he becomes, you know, this, this sort of junior member, adopted in a sense by the, by the oratory fathers, at the absolute lowest point of his life. He's an orphan, he's poor, he's lost, he's lost everything. But he, looking back, he describes the oratory as a home in excelsis, a home in the highest. Wow. He has nothing but praise for it. Oh. Uh, was he spiritually precocious, or... or- was he full of adolescent pranks? Oh, he was definitely full of pranks. Okay. Um, you know, he was he was very much a, a boy, um, and he had very high spirits. There's, there's one story of him um, taking a cat and putting it in the uh, the oratory's um, kitchen serving um, <laughs> lift. So that, you know, one of the one of the fathers went to get his breakfast, and there's a very annoyed cat waiting for him. <laughs> oh gosh. But uh, the, actually, the, the oratory spirituality has a very great emphasis on humor and fun as a part of spirituality. Yeah. So it was really an, an encouraging aspect of Tolkien's personality. Yeah. Did he, did he have <clears throat> um, kids his own age that he was able to relate to there? Um, in the oratory itself, they had a little brothers of the oratory, um, so for boys of... Uh, well, of Tolkien's age, and we don't know if he was involved directly with that. I think he, he may have been. We don't we don't know for sure. But he was involved with the Oratory's Boy Scout troop. Um, in fact, he and his brother Hillary were Boy Scout leaders, and this was actually sponsored by the Oratory to you know for the, the Catholic children of the neighborhood. And so he definitely had um, socialization with Catholic boys his own age, which was an important balance because he was at this point attending King Edward School, which was actually a Protestant day school. Mm. Kind of an unusual move for a Catholic boy at this era, um, because Catholic parents in general were very, very hesitant to allow their children to be educated in Protestant schools because the environment was so anti-Catholic that there was the danger that the, you know, the children would you know, be drawn away from their parents' faith. But Tolkien was very academically precocious, and that was the best place for him to be educated. Mm-hmm. And Mabel, while she was still alive, had discerned, almost certainly with the help of Father Francis and with you know, other oratory fathers, one of whom was the headmaster of an oratory school, they would send Tolkien there, but he would also he'd be receiving his spiritual formation at the oratory. Mm-hmm. He was an altar server. He served Mass every day. So there's definitely a sense that they're going to be forming him and catechizing him. And Tolkien later said that he felt that this was really important and allowed him later to move and work in a non-Catholic professional environment oh. because he had learned to be strongly rooted in his faith yeah. and not be afraid of his Protestant, you know, his Protestant classmates. Yeah, yeah. 
Did that, I'm just curious, is there any record of him having considered priesthood? There's no record of that. Um, so, I mean, absence is not evidence, but I think right. it's unlikely that he ever did, yeah. because he fell in love quite early. Um, oh, he yes. was a teenager. Yes. So I think he discerned his vocation to marriage pretty quickly. <laughs> yes, let's talk about that. That itself is a remarkable story. Um, he is. Um, he meets uh, Edith. What is her relationship to the oratory? Well, she doesn't have a specific relationship to the oratory, okay. except that she was also an orphan. Um, she was a Protestant, um, and she happens to be um, lodging um, at the same boarding house run by a Catholic family who are parishioners of the oratory. So that's her sort of okay. remote connection. Okay. And it's at that same lodging house that Father Francis has um, Tolkien and his brother. And so they meet when, you know, they're still teenagers, and they become first um, fast friends. Um, and then and then Tolkien falls in love with, with Edith, who was, you know, beautiful and vivacious and intelligent and clever and spirited. And he just loses his heart to this, this uh, young woman. Yeah. And she to him. And Father Francis doesn't like it. He doesn't. And this is interesting because, you know, it can very easily seem like, oh, here's Father Francis, the interfering priest, because ultimately he separates them. And he says, Tolkien, you must not see or write to Edith until you come of age. And Tolkien actually obeys. How? how that's three years? Three years. Hold it there, Holly. We'll come back. We'll pick up the conversation there. Because you're right. That is, when I read that, I just thought, wow. How I don't quite understand that. Um, but uh, we'll talk about it on the other side of the break. My guest, Dr. Holly Ordway, <clears throat> Tolkien's Faith, a Spiritual Biography. Catholic Connection with Teresa Tomio. So when you see these different media outlets working directly in conjunction or conclusion with the government to suppress stories, what does that say to us about the reliability or lack thereof of the secular media? And then this is combined with a report that came out, a survey that was done on media executives. They interviewed 75 media leaders around the country, and they're saying we're done with objectivity. Well, that's not exactly a news flash. But the fact that they're claiming that objectivity is just no longer necessary and we are elitists, we know better, and this is what we're going to do, is frightening. And this is one of the reasons that we stress the importance of having outlets such as The Register and EW10 News Nightly and The World Over and Catholic News Agency and EW10 News In-Depth. Catholic Connections, Teresa Tomio. Weekdays, 9 a.m. Eastern on EWTN Radio. It's time for Family Man with Dr. Gregory Popcha. When families create daily rituals for playing together, they don't just prioritize creating a joyful family life, they're building a holy family life too. Playing board games and card games, having family movie nights, taking short walks or hikes, shooting hoop, playing catch, doing crafts, and other similar activities aren't just healthy ways families have fun. They're ways Catholic families can teach healthy attitudes toward play. In a world where fun is often equated with sinful or destructive behaviors, family play rituals help parents teach kids healthy, godly ways to enjoy themselves. That's one reason family rituals for playing together are such an important part of Catholic family life. To discover more ways your family can celebrate the liturgy of domestic church life, check out the newest editions of Parenting with Grace and visit CatholicCounselors.com. I'm Dr. Greg Popchak, but you can call me Family Man. 
To discover more ways faith can enrich your life, visit CatholicCounselors.com. Underwritten in part by the following nonprofit. Do you have an insurance plan that pays for everything, even things you don't believe in? There are options. You can join Solidarity HealthShare, a faith-based health-sharing community. Plus, Solidarity HealthShare can save you money with prices starting as low as $384 a month for families. Call to see how much you can save. 844-398-9399. That's 844-398-9399. The Catechism defines evangelization as the proclamation of Christ and His gospel by word and the testimony of life in fulfillment of Christ's command. But what does that look like in real life? It looks like the St. Paul Evangelization volunteers out on the street, sharing the good news with people in a non-confrontational way, handing out free sacramentals, listening to them, praying for them, teaching them, planting seeds, and letting the Holy Spirit make them grow. Visit StreetEvangelization.com and learn more so you can get involved in real-life evangelization. 60 on 10 with Monsignor Charles Pope. The second commandment, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. The disclosure of a name in the ancient world belonged to the order of trust and intimacy. And so when God revealed his name to Moses, it was an extraordinary outreach to us, saying uh, that we were called to an intimate, trusting relationship with him. And so we should always reverence this name as a great gift. We should obviously never use God's name to curse or to blaspheme or to berate others. God's name is meant to bring blessing. And likewise, the vain use, vain means empty. Uh, so some of these expressions like, oh my God, or you know, and so on, uh, need to be avoided as well. Vain means empty, and those are using God's name as an empty kind of expression of exasperation. And then finally, never ever to use God's name to swear an oath falsely. God is the God of truth. The second commandment, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. For more about the Ten Commandments, visit EWTNRC.com. The best. 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 Of Cresta in the Afternoon Countdown. Number two. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. With me, Dr. Holly Ordway. Tolkien's Faith, a spiritual biography. Uh, Before the break, we're talking about uh, Tolkien falling in love with Edith. I think she's two years older than he is. And um, um, his. Guardian, uh, Father Francis decides uh, this doesn't, he doesn't think it's a good idea, apparently, and actually basically orders Tolkien not to see her for three years or write to her. That was even stranger. So I don't get that. So help me understand it. Well, I dug into this because I think this is this is in a way very mysterious because he, he loves Father Francis. Father yeah. Francis is looking after him. So what's going on? And what it comes down to is that this relationship is disrupting young Tolkien's life. Um, so one of the one of the problems is that he's neglecting to prepare for his scholarship examinations at Oxford, um, and in fact he fails the first time that he that he uh, applies. Mm. And this is really vitally important for his future because you know we take it for granted that he goes to Oxford, he becomes a professor. But he didn't have any money, and his, you know, his finances were very straightened. Even with Father Francis paying some of the fees out of pocket, which he did, he had to get a scholarship if he was going to go to university. 
And that was really the best way for his very obvious talents to be fulfilled. Mm -hmm. So Father Francis is really trying to look after his ward, like his long-term interest. Like, no, you need to not be distracted by your girlfriend. Um, (laughs) Now, that wasn't, I think, the main thing, though, because Tolkien admitted himself that he was likely to get, you know, just distracted by learning gothic or (laughs) some other (laughs) hobby. But it's that when they started to meet, you know, first they're, you know, they have you know, just conversations. Then they start meeting together, you know, going for long walks. It's all it's all innocent in what they're doing, but Tolkien lies about it. Oh. He lies deliberately. Um, he says, oh, I'm just going to go here by myself, and in reality, he went somewhere else with Edith. Mm-hmm. And I think that that is what set off the red flags for Father Francis. Yeah. Why is he, why is he lying about what, there's no reason for him to lie about this, because, you know, he could see this girl. And the fact that she was Protestant didn't mean they couldn't get married. Um, in fact, as I discerned in my research, she didn't even have to become a Catholic for them to get married. He would have been able to get a dispensation relatively easily. Mm-hmm. She did, in fact, eventually become Catholic and they married. But she, you know, it wasn't an obstacle, but it was something that he would have had to talk to his guardian about if he was serious about it, yeah. and he's not doing that. So I think Father Francis just maybe panics a little bit mm-hmm. and says, okay, I'm putting the brakes on this. Yeah. He doesn't like that it's leading Tolkien into a habit of dishonesty, yeah. of deliberate dishonesty. Now, here's the really interesting thing. When Tolkien, they, he forbids them to see each other, they end up moving to different lodgings, okay. But when Tolkien goes to Oxford um, a year later, he could easily have written to Edith without his guardian knowing. He could have deceived his guardian, but he chooses to obey him. Wow. And that really moves me. Me because too. He loves, he loves his guardian, and he knew, as painful as it was, he knew that Father Francis was doing this out of, of love and care for him. And he says it was very painful and difficult, and it did strain his relationship with his guardian, but it didn't break it. And later, Tolkien even says in a letter to one of his sons that he, in later years, reflected that it was only this separation that allowed a kind of boyish crush to mature into real love. Wow, that's great. That's great. Um, I love the last letter he writes to her before uh, the three-year fast, so to speak. He also includes two books for her. Um, uh, I think it's the Stations of the Cross book. Yes. And was the, was the other one a rosary? I can't remember what the second one was. Um, it's um, Stations of the Cross and Seven Words from That's the Cross. That's right, Seven um, Words from the Cross. So the two Lenten booklets. That's right. And so I think, yeah, it's interesting. This is not, not what you would imagine you would send to your sweetheart. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I think it's an indication that he's, even at that young age as a teenager, he's, he's taking his faith seriously and he knows that whatever relationship he may have with Edith in the future, their faith is going to be part of it. Their shared Christian faith and his Catholic faith is going to be an important part of it. Yeah. So why not start now? Let's talk uh, about being Catholic in England at the time. Um, it, it certainly is much different than it is today. Um, what were the barriers uh, to full participation? Well, I mean, socially, Catholics were very much marginalized from centuries of of disenfranchisement after, you know, after the Reformation in England, there were extremely strict penal laws imposed, you know, death to harbor priests, death to be a priest. And these were eased off, you know, in in the 
centuries that follow. But even by the 1800s, the middle 1800s, Catholics still did not have full civil rights. Um, it wasn't until the early 1800s that they, they got the right to vote back. It wasn't until 1850 that Oxford University allowed them to become students in Oxford. Um, so there's a lot of barriers that were, were only slowly coming down and a lot of anti-Catholic prejudice. Every time there was a relief bill in Parliament, there were literally riots in the street. No popery, down with the Pope, you know, popists. Yeah. <laughs> um, so this is the environment in which Tolkien's growing up. And I think it's important to recognize that his faith was not just a, you know, fait accompli. Okay, sure, his mother had become a Catholic, and therefore his, the boys were instructed in the faith, but it would have made his life a lot easier as a teenager, as a young man at Oxford, if he had, you know, he could have said, I'm going back to the Anglican faith of my father. Yeah. Um, yeah. Both sides of the extended family were Protestant. They would have been thrilled. Yeah. So there's a real intentionality about Tolkien remaining a Catholic, because he had a lot of pressure. To, his life would have been easier, you know, if, if he had gone back to Anglicanism, but he didn't. Yeah. Let's jump forward a bit here. Uh, they get married, and uh, three months—I think it's three months—after they're married, he's called to war. Yes, the Great War, yeah. um, absolute cataclysm. Um, and in and Tolkien later noted that almost all of his close friends were killed yeah. in the war. It's just absolute devastating trauma, and you know he made it through, but he he. He was um, evacuated out of the trenches because he had severe trench fever. Um, and that, at the time, was you know new disease, didn't know what it was, didn't have any effective way to treat it. If it became chronic, as it did in Tolkien's case, it was lifelong. Mm. So he was, he was affected by this. And he, he lost 30 pounds of weight at one point, and he was not a heavy set guy to begin with. Wow. He was quite 100% disabled. So quite a lot of suffering in the hospital, even apart from his suffering and you know, seeing the horrors of the trenches. So, and yet he, he keeps his faith. Yeah, all of this. Uh, and how does he do that? I mean, does he have ways of disciplining his uh, mind and heart? Uh, I, I mean, people say there's no, no atheist in a foxhole. I don't believe that. Uh, I think there are lots of atheists in foxholes. <laughs> Yeah, and a lot of his a lot of his Anglican you know compatriots lost their faith yeah. um, when they went to war, and his friends, his future friend C.S. Lewis started the war as an atheist and was still an atheist when he came out. That's right. Yeah, yeah. You know, one of the one of the things I think we can see with Tolkien is that because he had endured a lot of suffering already, he was an orphan. He really had developed some spiritual muscle before he even got to the war, okay. because he had been helped to process this. He'd been helped to grieve and to understand, to face up the problem of suffering. So it's a new aspect of suffering at a huge scale, but it's something he's already confronted personally. And we see he has this devotional practice of memorizing prayers that he recites to himself if he can't you know, get to a Mass or a, a communion service. And he had a remarkable memory, and he committed to memory the entire canon of the Mass, for oh. instance. Um, in, and and in a Latin? number of other prayers. In Latin, of course. <laughs> um, 
And uh, and actually, in, the, in, the, in Tolkien's faith, I put in an appendix with all of the prayers that we know for a fact that Tolkien knew by heart, because yeah. it really gives us a window into his personal devotional life. Like, he knew these prayers. He had a lot of Marian prayers, the Magnificat, the Litany of Loretto. He knew those by heart, and he drew upon them as you know, our resource in, in time of trouble. Uh, when he comes back uh, after the war, uh, having performed his patriotic duty, uh, does, does he is he more respected? Uh, in other words, it frequently happens that Catholics prove themselves to a hostile government because they're willing to shed blood on behalf of that government. Uh, did that uh, help him at all? Well, I certainly think it was an element in, in his motivation, um, because he, he was patriotic, um, and he, he was aware that there was a sense of, well, are Catholics really patriots? And I suspect that this helped him, you know, to, mm-hmm. to show that, like, yes, I was willing to put my life on the line um, for yeah. my country yeah. as a Catholic. When does he, uh, well, how, let's jump to the Inklings. Uh, when, how does that start? Well, he gets to know C.S. Lewis, um, who's the core of the, of the, you know, the Inklings. Um, in 1926, um, he's, he's been working for Bitten Leeds. He, he gets his position at Oxford um, as a professor, and he meets Lewis actually at a faculty meeting. And the funny thing is that these men, who would become such great friends and form the Inklings together, they, they didn't exactly hit it off all that well. <laughs> <laughs> Lewis said of, of Tolkien, wrote in his diary, ah, you know, pale, fluent sort of chap, no harm in him, just needs a smack or so. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, Lewis was an atheist at that time, mm-hmm. um, and he came from a um, Ulster Protestant background, from an from an anti-Catholic background. So the fact that they became friends is kind of remarkable. Mm. But they had these shared literary interests, and they hit it off on terms of like, oh, we both love the Norse sagas. And then Tolkien, he's starting to be friends with Lewis. He takes a real risk, sort of emotionally, and he shows Lewis the draft of a poem. It's one of his early Middle-earth poems. And he shows it to Lewis and asks for his comments. Now, as a writer, like, this is putting your heart out in a platter. Yeah, right. right? <laughs> and Lewis responds so warmly. He loves it. He offers thoughtful critiques. And this really takes their friendship to the next level, because now they can really, you know, talk to each other about these things that, that matter. Lewis is also interested in Christianity now. He's, you know, he's, he's on the path, and Tolkien helps him on that path. He's a major influence on Lewis becoming a Christian. Um, and so then the, the nucleus of the Inklings forms around that friendship in, you know, in the 30s and onward. Yeah, we'll come, I come back on the other side of the break and, and pursue this a little bit more, because what's funny is that, in a sense, a Tolkien leads Lewis to faith in Christ, but Lewis is the one that's probably best remembered as the uh, more evangelical of the two. <laughs> so, right. Yeah. So we'll come back on the other side. We'll, we'll pick, pick at that a little bit. My guess is Dr. Holly Ordway. Uh, it's a remarkable book. Tolkien's Faith, a spiritual biography. Again, it's, it's, it's rich, uh, nearly 500 pages, and we're going to be talking about this literary group, the Inklings, that were so productive and helpful uh, for all of its members. We are the pro-life generation, passionate about building the culture of life in our health care and in our nation. But not all health care options are equally pro-life, and some provide morally objectionable procedures. CMF Curo is different. 
CMF Curo is a pro-life Catholic healthcare ministry providing a pathway for its members to build the culture of life in their healthcare choices, not destroy it. Learn more about CMF Curo at MyCatholicHealthcare.com. That's MyCatholicHealthcare.com. Cresta in the Afternoon is underwritten by the following nonprofit organization. Real Estate for Life. Buying or selling your home or business property? Real Estate for Life can connect you with one of 1,400 pro-life real estate agents around the world. When Real Estate for Life receives a referral fee, they donate 70% to Ave Maria Radio and Human Life International. More information at realestateforlife.org or 877-LIFE-US1. That's realestateforlife.org. The wisdom of Mother Angelica. The devil will always do his best to tempt you into sin until you get to that place where you love sin. That's what he wants. He wants you down there with him. And not because he loves you, he hates you. When you do what the enemy tempts you to do, he does it out of pure hatred. EWTN. Live truth. Live Catholic. With so much going on in the world, it's easy to feel overwhelmed. What do you need to know today? Stay tuned to Cresta in the Afternoon and Catholic Connection with Teresa Tomio as we bring you the day's top stories and conversations from an authentic Catholic perspective. Never miss an episode of Cresta in the Afternoon. Subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also listen on demand at AveMariaRadio.net and on the Ave Maria Radio app. Dr. Ray Garendi. What's looking back at you at age 22? What do you hope to say about that child at age 22? If you're content to say, well, the way kids are turning out nowadays, counting my blessings. Parole officer says one of the nicest children he has. Or would you rather say he's one in a hundred? Morals, compassion, seeks God. Are you prepared to be a one in a hundred parent then? You can't parent like the bulk of parents anymore. You will supervise far higher. You will screen out toxic media sewage at a rate unlike all of your friends, perhaps your family. No guarantees as to what will be looking back at you at age 22. But you want to be able to say, I think he's one in a hundred. Then you be a one in a hundred parent. What comes to your mind when you hear the word passion? Passion often signifies intensity of emotions and feelings, frequently in terms of lust. But the Catholic Catechism tells us passions are neither good nor bad in and of themselves. In other words, passions are morally good if they contribute to a good action, and evil if they bring about the opposite result. The most fundamental passion is love, says the Catechism. It is aroused by attraction to the good, the desire to attain the good, and fulfilled by joy and pleasure once the good is possessed. Evil, on the other hand, arouses hatred, aversion, and fear. Passions are the passageway connecting the senses and the mind. Jesus said the source of all passions was the human heart. This is Peggy Stanton, and this has been the Order of Malta's Minute with the Catechism. The best, 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 best of Cresta in the Afternoon Countdown. Number two. 
Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. With me, Dr. Holly Ordway, author of Tolkien's Faith, a spiritual biography. Uh, before the close of last break, we were talking about the development of this literary group called the Inklings, and also how it is that uh, C.S. Lewis, who became, of course, arguably the most effective uh, ap- Christian apologist uh, of the 20th century, was actually led to faith in Christ in a very serious way by uh, a conversation he had with J.R.R. Tolkien. And uh, but Tolkien is often not thought of as especially outgoing with his faith. But he, he, he was he seemed he must have been comfortable uh sharing his faith, right? Yes, and the interesting thing is that when I looked deeply into his biography for this this book, I found that he really did evangelize. He shared his faith, but he did it on a personal basis. Mm-hmm. He did it in one to one conversations, he did it in writing letters, um and he did it through his fiction implicitly. I think he had a really clear sense of his own sort of gifting and his own his own inclinations. And Lewis had a great gift for public speaking, mm-hmm. for you know, public broadcasting on the BBC. Mm-hmm. Um, in in theology, and Tolkien was perfectly willing to you know, do public lectures about literature, but he just felt like no, that's not my area to speak publicly, you know, on the air to a big audience about theology. But he did this witnessing, you know, individually and in these conversations, and you know, it had a huge impact um, on C.S. Lewis, you yeah. know, early in his in his life. And one of the big influences that Tolkien had on him was for him to see that the reality of the Christian story is that it is what Lewis later called a myth-made fact. Yes. It's legend, as Tolkien put it, a legend that became history. Mm-hmm. So it's a story that also really happened. And that sense of the story power of the Incarnation, the Resurrection, that's something we see in all of Lewis's work, and that was something that Tolkien first shared with him. Yeah. It's, you know, Tolkien who first articulates that idea, and then Lewis grasps it and, and runs with it. Yeah. Um, and I think that's the beauty, you know, of, of evangelization. Like, Tolkien didn't need <laughs> to be doing these public broadcasts, because he, he had helped his friend, and yeah. his friend is yeah. doing those. Yeah, did he did, was he did he like what Lewis was doing as a uh, a lay theologian, lay apologist? Well, he actually wasn't terribly impressed. He he wasn't keen. <laughs> he wasn't keen on lay people taking the public teaching role. Yeah. Um, he actually, interestingly, he was very keen on lay people having active roles within the church. In fact, he was he was sort of ahead of his time, in a sense, in that, in a time when usually the clergy were the ones who were more involved in things. Mm-hmm. Tolkien was, was active in lay organizations, but he, he wasn't all that keen on, you know, the, the sort of more public figure. But I think partly that's because he saw the dangers you know, of of it maybe leading to pride, um, mm-hmm. and it didn't in Lewis's case. Lewis remained very humble, but I think Tolkien was aware, like, this is, you know, this has its risks, and I'm not too keen on this. Well, um, but, you know, different sorts of different folks. Yeah. Were, were, were Catholics a second-class citizen among the Inklings? In, incidentally, no, they weren't. And this is remarkable, because given the anti-Catholic culture that was still very prevalent mm-hmm. in in England and in Oxford, Catholics actually, there were a lot of them amongst the Englands. It wasn't just Tolkien. Um, and Lewis made sure that they were not a second-class citizen. There was very much a shared, you know, we're all we're all part of the Inklings. Now, that didn't mean that it always went smoothly. There's one Inkling in particular, Hugo Dyson, who 
later becomes quite anti-Catholic and causes a, a real tension in the group and, and may even has contributed to it kind of fading off in the last years. Yeah. Um, but for the, for the you know, central decades of the Inklings, you know, Lewis was really great at keeping a kind of you know, camaraderie and, and they could talk about things. And that's the interesting thing. They didn't just avoid topics of religion. They could go at it hammer and tongs and talk about doctrinal issues very heatedly. And then, then they would, you know, have a beer. <laughs> yeah, right. uh, I guess he says, uh, Tolkien says, Lord of the Rings is, of course, a fundamentally religious and Catholic work. And you point out the of course is kind of interesting. It was quite obvious to him. Um, but it's amazing that so many of those who absolutely love Lord of the Rings don't seem to um, take away any explicit uh, religious content from it. Yes, and I think this is very much on purpose, because Tolkien's whole mode of working in his stories was implicit, indirect. Mm -hmm. It was there if you wanted to find it, and it was there in the moral fabric of the story, you know, the, the moral sort of economy of the story, yeah. the values are presented in it. Um, and so people are taking it in, you know, the value of humility, the value of self-sacrifice. I mean, Frodo, <laughs> this is brilliant. That's being taken in by everyone, whether or not they recognize that, oh, that's a Christian virtue. Tolkien's doing it very much under the radar. Um, and that's where I think his word choice is so important. It's fundamentally Catholic, not superficially. Mm -hmm. There's not like religious references peppered in. In fact, he's very clear. It's not an allegory. He says, I neither preach nor teach. It's a story. But fundamentally, it's infused with his, his faith, with his belief in the one God. Um, all of these things are at kind of the bedrock of it. Mm. And that's what kind of presents that it seems like a paradox. How can it be fundamentally religious, and yet people can read it and never notice it? But it's because it's so sort of woven into the fabric that, that you take it in without even realizing that you're taking it in. It's, it's a monotheistic world, right? Um, mm -hmm. And the 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 ethics don't change from group to group, or the the moral law doesn't change from group to group. Um, he, he, he deals with evil and moral responsibility. Uh, I think there's one statement from uh, Aragorn in Two Towers, which says, "Good and evil have not changed since yesteryear, nor are they one thing among elves and dwarves and another among men." Uh, so, and there's that wonderful moment of divine providence at the end where Frodo basically fails in the quest, and then um, you have, of course, uh, Gollum seizing the ring, falling into the fire, Middle-earth is saved, Frodo himself is saved. But who's responsible for that? <laughs> <laughs> well, that would be where, here's Tolkien's genius, because he notes on one level, in terms of the story, it's it's just a logical unfolding of, of what the characters choose to do. You can it's a great story on that level, absolutely. But also the very reason that Gollum is there is because Frodo and Sam and Bilbo have showed mercy. Yeah. They didn't kill him when they had a chance. 
Um, and mercy is a fundamentally Christian value yes. um, over against, you know, pagan values. There's a, there's a lot of influence, you know, from the Norse epics and Beowulf and whatnot in, in Lord of the Rings. This is a major influence as well. But mercy was not a pagan value. It was a weakness. Right. So this idea that, you know, Frodo has shown mercy and pity to Gollum, that's what enables Providence to work through to enable the quest to be fulfilled, even though Frodo is broken at the end. Yeah. He, he's taken past his endurance. And that's very much a theological reflection. And Tolkien talks about this in his letters, um, that, that on the theological level, that's the working of Providence. And this is Tolkien's genius. It's not allegorical, um, but there's this other level of meaning that's available if you want to look into it, and it adds to the richness of the story. Yeah. Um, the idea, where did you come up with the idea of a hobbit? Well, that is a mystery. He just wrote on a blank page one day, grading papers, you know, in a hole in the ground there lived a hobbit, and from there came all of the hobbit and the <laughs> <laughs> Lord of the Rings. Wow. Uh, did he share these stories with his kids? I mean, who... He, who was he sharing material with? Well, he'd been writing the Middle-earth stories since, really, you know, he was a young man um, all his adult life. Okay. Um, shared them a little bit with Edith. Um, he tells the stories of the Hobbit and starts to read them to them. Um, and then as he's writing Lord of the Rings, which becomes a much bigger, you know, story, he's sharing it with, um, with his son Christopher and also to C.S. Lewis. Um, and here we can see that mutual support because, you know, Tolkien had had helped Lewis to become a Christian, without which he wouldn't have had probably the Chronicles of Narnia. You know, he might he might never have become a Christian, or he might have done it much later. And then Tolkien says of Lewis that for, meant for a long time, Lewis was his only reader. And if it wasn't for Lewis's constant encouragement, he would never have finished The Lord of the Rings. Wow. So Lewis gave this great gift of encouragement to to Tolkien. And so they, the two men really, in this beautiful friendship, helped each other to write their great masterworks. Given the extraordinary popularity of Lord of the Rings, is there, how have critics viewed it? Well, it was, it was pretty puzzling to critics at first. They didn't know what to make of it, and they, a lot of them didn't like it very much. They thought it was sort of childish, mm -hmm. um, but it, it just didn't fit preconceptions about what a grown-up novel would be like. <laughs> right. But Tolkien, he, he's kind of won them over. I mean, I think, honestly, I think The Lord of the Rings is a masterpiece, and 500 years from now, he'll be on the great books list alongside, you know, Chaucer and Shakespeare and Austin and, and Dickens, because it has such a staying power. And now, as more serious literary critics have looked at it, I said, oh, well, there's a lot going on here. Yeah. And yeah. there really is yeah. tremendous literary work. We've got about three minutes. Um, tell, talk to us about what he means by the great eucatastrophe. Well, eucatastrophe means the good catastrophe. It's the thing that it seems like it's overturning everything. It seems like a disaster, but it turns to good. It's the unexpected happy ending. And we see this, for instance, in The Lord of the Rings when we think Frodo and Sam are lost at Mount Doom, and the eagles come, and they rescue them. And Tolkien says that the greatest eucatastrophe is the resurrection. Um, the resurrection of Christ is the eucatastrophe you know, of, of all of human history, yeah. and it, it has all the power of a story, and it actually happened. 
And he says that this is why we have this lifting of the heart at a happy ending in a story. It's because whether we know it or not, we are participating in the great eucatastrophe that happened in reality. Was it with you that I, I read that Tolkien, uh, when, he, when he was writing about the eucatastrophe, the coming of the eagles at the end there, that he blotted the page with his tears? The scene in Cormallon, yeah, when it's actually when they're being honored by uh, okay. by, the, by the minstrel. And I've actually seen that page um, in Marquette. It really is blotted with his tears. He was so moved by it um, that he, he wept. <laughs> it, it blurred the ink as he was writing. After so much suffering, these humble hobbits are being honored. Yes. And he was so moved by this that he wept. <laughs> A few uh, questions of how did he how did he respond to the second vatican council um well that's a very complex question okay. because there are lots of different things going on um he didn't like the loss of latin he loved latin yeah. he was very sad very personally grieved to see latin go but he accepted it um he continued to attend mass he went to a Nova sort of parish at the end of his life mm-hmm. um and there were many things about the Second Vatican Council that really resonated with his spirituality. For instance, um, the decree of ecumenism. Yeah. You know, he had been living out that articulation of the Church's teaching his whole life, yep. with the inklings with his other friends. Um, and so, you know, he, and he's, he's very, I think, alert to the fact that there were, there were good things that came out of it that, that really they honored. Yeah. yeah. Holly, thanks so much. Uh, this is a great contribution. and uh, My pleasure. Yeah. We'll talk again. Thanks. <laughs> Excellent. Dr. Holly Ordway, it's called Tolkien's Faith, a spiritual biography. It really is a, a work of uh, magnificent proportions, 500 pages, t- attention to detail, just beautiful. The Heart of the Interior Life with Elizabeth Jangle. In St. Ignatius of Loyola's fourth rule for the discernment of spirits, he teaches that one of the aspects of spiritual desolation is, as he describes it, movement to low and earthly things. This aspect of spiritual desolation is the contrary to what a soul experiences in spiritual consolation. In spiritual consolation, we experience an upward call to heavenly things. The contrary is true in spiritual desolation. There will be a downward pull towards low and earthly things. Father Timothy Gallagher writes, Persons in spiritual desolation, on the contrary, feel no attraction to prayer and to God's service, but are drawn toward lower and more earthly things. Identifying and understanding this downward pull as from the enemy, and then rejecting it, enables greater freedom from the empty promises of spiritual desolation. For more information, visit AveMariaRadio.net. Christ is the Answer, with Father John Ricardo. In the midst of our culture today, in this age of relativism, which wants to grant Jesus some significance, but not so much, so we'll give him wise man, great leader, inspiring preacher, great teacher, prophet. You don't get that option when you claim to be God. What reasons do we have to believe that he is who he said he is? And it's important, again, to employ the use of our reason and to understand that faith is not blind. My faith 
And please, God, the faith of everyone here is not blind. It rests on something. It rests on a number of things, not least of which is my own experience of God, but it also has something substantial which can be claimed through history. We're not talking about a galaxy long, long ago, far, far away when we talk about Jesus. We're talking about a precise moment in history which has been testified to by countless testimonies, and you and I have access to them. Thanks for joining us in that hour. You can uh, find Holly's writings in the online store at AveMariaRadio.net or in the Cresta Guest Archive. We'll have her books available as well as some different things that have been written about her work and about the faith of Tolkien. Uh, Certainly a favorite of mine, and I really enjoyed listening to that again. While I'm here, I will say that uh, the message of the gospel is universal. Catholic Radio goes all over the world and certainly all over the U.S. But we're based in Ann Arbor, and I would be remiss if I did not give a shout-out to... uh, University of Michigan, big win yesterday. Nice to see um, Jim Harbaugh, you know, has been so outspoken about his faith and about the pro-life message. Uh, finally get that big win, and we're looking forward to another one next week. We'll m- maybe see if we can work that into the discussion uh, over the next few days. In the next hour, number one in the countdown, how reformists and traditionalists drove Catholic history. John McGreevy, author of Catholicism, A Global History from the French Revolution to Pope Francis, joins us to discuss how a better understanding of where we came from enhances our understanding of where we are now. Uh, Beginning with the French Revolution, John McGreevy will help us understand the path that the Church has taken over the last two centuries and the complex role the Church has played as both a shaper and a follower in global politics. Coming up in the next hour, the number one interview of 2023, John McGreevy. More to come on Cresta in the afternoon. We'll be right back. from the studios of Ave Maria Radio in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Al Cresta is ready for conversations of consequence. This is Cresta in the Afternoon. Good afternoon and welcome to the final day, the final hour of the Cresta in the Afternoon 2023 Countdown. Before we go to uh, that topic, wanted to offer some congratulations to a longtime member of the, another EWTN radio family, Sacred Heart Radio in Cincinnati, celebrating 23 years with us. They partner with us on the Sunrise Morning Show. Congratulations to Bill Levitt and everybody at Sacred Heart Radio from your friends at Ave Maria Radio and EWTN. Talked about a lot in this countdown, everything from the meaning of death to the life of Tolkien, the life of Mark Twain, the meaning of gender, and much, much more. It's been a lot of fun over the last couple of days talking about the uh, 2023 countdown and everything that we talked about over the last 12 months in this hour. Number one, how did reformists and traditionalists drive Catholic history? Uh, to understand where we are today, we have to understand where we came from. And John McGreevy begins with the French Revolution and helps us understand the path the Church has taken over the last two centuries and the complex role the Church has played as both a shaper and a follower in global politics. 
By understanding our history, we can better understand the challenges we are facing today. John's the author of Catholicism, A Global History from the French Revolution to Pope Francis, professor of history at University of Notre Dame. He's number one in the countdown, and he's coming up right after this news break. Thank you, Bryant, and good afternoon, everyone. This is your Ave Maria Radio News for Tuesday, January 2nd. It's the Feast of St. Basil the Great. And today's news is brought to you by Ave Maria Family of Funds at AveMariaFunds.com. Israel says it will withdraw several thousand troops from the Gaza Strip. The IDF made the announcement Monday. Nothing in nearly three-month war has taken a growing toll on the Israeli economy. According to the United Nations, more than 85% of Gaza's residents have been displaced from their homes, and the fighting has left more than 20,000 people dead. Ukrainian President Zelensky is promising an increase in Ukrainian-produced weapons in 2024 as the country's war with Russia rages on. In a year-end speech, Zelensky said this year, the enemy will fill the raft of domestic production. Harvard University President Claudine Gay is resigning. She announced her decision Tuesday in a message to the Harvard community. This comes following allegations of plagiarism and a campus controversy over anti-Semitism. Gay's tenure is now the shortest in the school's history after she became Harvard's first black president in July. The stage is set for the college football playoff national championship game. Top-ranked Michigan will meet second-ranked Washington in this year's title game after both won semifinals on New Year's Day. The big game takes place next Monday in Houston. And fitness remains the top New Year's resolution going into 2024. According to Forbes Health New Year's Resolution Survey, 48% of Americans plan to improve their fitness by making it the most popular goal. Other most common resolutions include improving finances, improving mental health, losing weight, and improving one's diet. Less popular goals include traveling more, meditating regularly, drinking less alcohol, and performing better at work. From the AveMariaRadio.net News Desk, I'm Dan McGraw. The best. 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 best, best. Of Cresta in the Afternoon Countdown. Number one. 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 And good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. Dr. John McGreevy is provost and professor of history at the University of Notre Dame. He's the author of several uh, important books, uh, including American Jesuits in the World, How an Embattled Religious Order Made Modern Catholicism Global, and Catholicism and American Freedom, a history, which I found personally very helpful in orienting myself to American Catholic history. Recently, he's published uh, a magisterial volume. Um, It is called... Catholicism, a global history from the French Revolution to Pope Francis. And Dr. McGreevy, a great pleasure to have you with me again. Thank you. Great to be here. Thanks for having me on. Let's uh, let's start out. You you point out that uh, a better understanding of Catholicism will enhance our understanding of the modern world. How so? Well, um, even though a lot of people don't realize it, Catholicism is the most multicultural multicultural, uh, multilingual, and biggest organization in the world. Uh, 1.2 billion baptized Catholics. Uh, And so a lot of historians now are interested in global history. I'm one of them. And how do we think about history beyond the nation state? And any attempt to do that 
without looking carefully at Catholicism is inadequate. It's a mistake. Um, it's such a pervasive global institution that we need to think about Catholicism as we think about global trends in history. Yeah. Uh, and, and uh, you know, 1.2 billion baptized members, most of whom are, are living in the global south, I think, right? Yeah. I often say, you know, the... the Average Catholic in the woman, a Catholic in the world right now, is not a person who looks like me. I'm a white guy who grew up in South Dakota. Uh, instead, it's a woman of color living in Manila or Costa Rica or Nigeria. That is the modal Catholic right now, and. American Catholics, I think, make up about 6% of the world's Catholics. And it's just a reminder of how big, diverse, uh, and complicated the church is. Yeah, yeah. Now, uh, the book begins with the French Revolution. And <clears throat> throughout the book, you've got kind of two poles uh, that, that recur. You've got what you call ultramontanism, and you've got Reformed Catholicism. Just briefly describe what you mean by ultramontanism and by Reformed Catholicism, and then give us an example of one positive contribution and one failure of each. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, you're a cl- good close reader. Thank you for that. Um, ultramontanism, it's a fancy word, but really all it means is over the mountains toward Rome. Okay. And so... The ultramontane movement existed in the 18th century, but really gets going in the 19th century in reaction to the French Revolution, a sense that Catholicism needed to protect its members from uh, the you know the persecutions that were unleashed during the French Revolution, the sense that much of the world might be somewhat uh, anti-Catholic, or at least parts of the world would be, and in turn, Catholics need to protect themselves by building their own institutions. One huge achievement of ultramontanism was developing a popular piety that really resonated at all levels of society, but even much more with working class and immigrant and poor people. Mm-hmm. And a lot of that piety is familiar even now. So rosaries and the Sacred Heart and novenas and uh, Gothic cathedrals, all of which conveyed a sense that Jesus cared about these individuals deeply, even if they were unknown, if they were poor, if they were struggling, if they were in turmoil. That was profound, um, that capacity to have a kind of populist, successful piety, mm-hmm. uh, a huge achievement. A uh, huge problem for the ultramontanist movement mm-hmm. as it developed over the 19th century was often a kind of unthinking hostility to the modern world. Okay. And so ultramontanists were intermittently excited about, but then very cool about democracy, Suspicious of claims of individual rights, um, you know, not very forward-thinking on role of women. Although there's a lot to say about that, mm-hmm. and so I think sometimes that hostility to um, many dimensions of the modern world, a suspicious attitude, uh, inhibited ultramontanism okay. and, and created problems by the mid-20th century. And Reformed Catholicism. Yeah. Reform Catholicism was quite different. Instead of being populist, it was elite. And it was a sense in the 18th century among some highly educated people um, that the church needed to reform. 
and so even in the 18th century, in the 1780s, uh, these Reformed Catholics are talking about, should the liturgy not be in Latin, but in the vernacular languages, German, mm-hmm. French, French, Spanish, Portuguese, etc. And should uh, lay people have a role in parish councils? And should um, lay people have a role in selecting bishops? And could we diminish the importance of the papacy? Because it really should be more of a national church loosely connected to the papacy in Rome. And that tension between an ultramontane vision of the church and what I call a Reformed Catholic vision of the church really does exist through most of the 19th century. Mm-hmm. The ultramontanes triumph. The moment of their triumph really is in 1870 uh, at the First Vatican Council, where it's a very papal-oriented uh, set of documents that come out of the First Vatican Council, including the claim that the Pope could be infallible. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it seemed as if Catholic reform was done. Uh, but then some dimensions of it came back in the context of the Second Vatican Council. There's a wonderful book by actually Sean Blanchard, a historian in Australia, that talks about echoes of the 1780s Catholic reform debates uh, that appear in the Second Vatican Council. So where would a, where would a, a figure like John Henry Newman fit? In this you know, kind of tr- two-dimensional, or this polarization. Tricky. Yeah, tricky. Um, on both sides, because he's such a complex yeah. figure. Yeah. On the one hand, very um, enthusiastic about forms of ultramontane piety. In some ways, quite enthusiastic about papal authority, in some ways. Uh, on the other hand, was not in favor of the Declaration of Infallibility, uh, worried that there was too much hostility to good things uh, in the modern world. So a little bit of a mixture of both. Newman gets kind of resurrected, in a way, in the 1950s and 1960s for his idea that church teaching can evolve. Right. Uh, that tradition is not static. And I would put that much more on the Catholic reform side of the equation as opposed to ultramontane. What would be an example of uh, failure uh, of reform Catholicism? You know, it never developed. It was, I think, this is a kind of a cruel term, but snobbish. Okay. (laughs) You know, it was never, it never developed really a popular piety. So while the ultramontane Catholics are are developing a a very successful mode of parish mission, and they're sending missionaries out all over the world, the Reformed Catholics was sort of more intellectuals and elites. Mm -hmm. And it didn't really get at... Uh, what was needed to develop a popular piety, and in fact was sometimes kind of scornful of it. That was, a, that was one reason why the Ultramontanes really do triumph. Numbers are on their side, mm-hmm. unquestionably. Mm-hmm. You begin with the French Revolution. <clears throat> uh, give us some idea of why this and the subsequent Napoleonic Wars were the most disruptive event in modern Catholic history. So I really debated when I was writing the book, beginning with the Reformation, which was you know a lot earlier than that in the right. 16th century, or beginning with the French Revolution, both highly disruptive events. I chose the French Revolution because the book is really about modern Catholicism, 19th and 20th century, and a lot of people would say the modern era 
begins with the French Revolution. The French Revolution is the first, you know, major state where it's democracy, okay, mm-hmm. at least in the first phase, where, where citizens have a role in selecting their leaders and their conventions and the idea of human rights, and they're going to abolish slavery. It turns in the middle of the revolution into a more uh, despotic state. And as part of that, there is significant persecution of Christianity. And that has immense impact, uh, not just across Europe, but across the world. It has impact across Europe because France is the most important country in Europe, and French Catholicism is shattered and devastated by the end of the French Revolution. And then Napoleon kind of takes dimensions of the French Revolution everywhere in Europe. And so it goes to Italy, it goes to uh, the Austrian Habsburg Empire, and, and a whole range of other places. But it even goes abroad, and so countries like Haiti uh, have a kind of version of the French Revolution in Haiti, and there's a very intense Catholic debate there. And so what I say is the French Revolution helps set up this ultramontane Catholic reform tension, and the echoes of the French Revolution reverberate not just across Europe but across the world. Mm. Uh, if, uh, this was the papacy's first encounter with what we might call democracy, mm-hmm. and it would have would would. Can you imagine the history of the Church <clears throat> being different uh, had the papacy's first exposure to democracy not been? Uh, in a movement which was anti-clerical, anti-ecclesial? Yeah. No, I think that's a great question. Remember, the first phase of the French Revolution was not anti-clerical or or profoundly anti-ecclesial. There were some dimensions of it that were. But many parish priests were enthusiastic supporters. In fact, we think about half of the early French Revolution. Wow. And, and, and basically the idea that, you know, and they were often very critical of their bishops. Remember, bishops and, and priests are paid by the state in right. France. Right. Many bishops were corrupt, um, and becoming a bishop was just part of a way to get more money. Some bishops had mistresses. I mean, it was not, in that sense, some senses, a very healthy church. Mm-hmm. Uh, as the French Revolution became persecution-minded, you're right, people's attitudes shifted, and that did probably set a little bit of a template of antagonism to democracy. However, if you go to Latin America, where is the most democratic part of the world in the 1820s and 1830s, um, many, many Catholics are supportive of democracy there. I really see the turning point as 1848. There are all these revolutions across Europe that are democratic revolutions again in 1848. And they become very anti-papal, too, especially in Rome. And that was a turning point where Pius IX, who was pope then, really moved away from early endorsements of what he called liberalism and democracy and said, no, no, we need to focus on our own institutions. That's not important. And often these liberals want to persecute the church. And it took a long time to move beyond that suspicion and hostility. Hmm. In some ways, it takes till the Second Vatican Council to to move beyond that. Um, I want to come back. We're going to have to take a break in just a moment here. But when we come back, I want to talk about uh, we take we take the nation state as a as a given. Uh, I think, mm-hmm. and uh, we don't remember a world uh, that, that before 
the arrival of nation states. So I want to talk about why the the new nation states of Europe uh, end up seeing the church as a rival uh, to their agendas. We'll come back on the other side of the break and pick that up. My guest is Dr. John McGreevy. He is author, most recently, of a magnificent work called Catholicism, a global history from the French Revolution to Pope Francis. I'm Al Cresta. We're coming right back. Father Benedict Groeschel. I want to welcome you, if you're not familiar, with the wonderful world of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. What will America become if it makes it impossible for the Holy Spirit to work here because of untruth and self-indulgence and paganism? This is not just a nice discussion of the gifts of the Holy Spirit, because I'm going to discuss what happens when people make it impossible to be prudent, just, or honest, or brave, or courageous, or reverent. When people make that impossible, what a terrible thing they do not only to themselves, but to our society. EWTN. Live Truth. Live Catholic. What is catechesis and why do we care? The job of catechesis is to reveal all the joy as well as the demands of the way of Christ, says the Catholic Catechism. The way of Christ is summed up in the catechesis of the Beatitudes. Jesus gave us the eight Beatitudes in his Sermon on the Mount. The Catholic Catechism tells us this teaching is the only path that leads to the eternal Beatitude, happiness, for which the human heart longs. The catechesis of sin and forgiveness challenges us. Unless man acknowledges that he is a sinner, states the catechism, he cannot know the truth about himself, which is a condition for acting justly, and without the offer of forgiveness, man could not bear the truth. This is Peggy Stanton, and this has been the Order of Malta's Minute with the Catechism. This program is brought to you in part by Charity Mobile, a proud partner of Ave Maria Radio for over 15 years. Charity Mobile is the pro-life cell phone company and has sent nearly $2 million to thousands of pro-life charities. 4G LTE coverage is available nationwide, and 5% of your monthly plan price goes to your favorite pro-life charity. A video introduction is available at CharityMobile.com. Charity Mobile, everyday living, effortless giving. CharityMobile.com. CMF Curo is a Catholic health care ministry providing families nationwide with a better solution centered around whole health, spirit, mind, and body. Our members share their medical burdens within a faith-filled community. At CMF Curo, our members have access to a spiritual director, concierge services, and other health and spiritual resources. Find out if CMF Curo is a better solution for your family. Visit MyCatholicHealthCare.com. That's MyCatholicHealthCare.com. Would you get on a plane that doesn't have a pilot? Investing in passive index mutual funds may present the same issue. The Ave Maria mutual funds are actively managed by seasoned investment professionals to help you meet your investment goals in a morally responsible way. Ave Maria funds are managed to conform to pro-life and pro-family values. 
Long-term investors could invest in the no-load Ave Maria Mutual Fund. You can learn more about the Ave Maria Mutual Funds at 866-AVE-MARIA or visit AveMariaFunds.com. With so much going on in the world, it's easy to feel overwhelmed. What do you need to know today? Stay tuned to Cresta in the Afternoon and Candle Connection with Teresa Tomio as we bring you the day's top stories and conversations from an authentic Catholic perspective. Never miss an episode of Cresta in the Afternoon. Subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also listen on demand at AveMariaRadio.net and on the Ave Maria Radio app. The best, 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 best of Cresta in the Afternoon countdown. Number one, one, one. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. With me is Dr. John McGreevy, a provost and professor of history at the University of Notre Dame and author most recently of Catholicism, Global History from the French Revolution to Pope Francis. As I was saying before the break, uh, John, we, we all assume the nation state, we think uh, nation states have been the, the form that humans use to organize themselves for a long time. But uh, the nation state hasn't a fairly recent uh, origin. Tell us, help us orient to how the emergence of the nation-state became a rival to the church. Yeah, that's another interesting question. Um, so the, the great era of emergence of the nation-states, modern Germany, modern Italy, frankly, after the Civil War, the modern United States, modern Argentina, modern Brazil, is the 19th century. And the idea that a nation state should be geographically contiguous, uh, voters in some way should be, be able to elect uh, their leaders, uh, there should be flags, there should be stamps, passports, all the things that we associate now with a nation state, those are almost all invented in the 19th century. <laughs> now, lots of Catholics were very comfortable with those nation states. Lots of leaders of those nation states, though, were suspicious of a global Catholic Church. You know, how are we going to reconcile what I began the podcast talking about, the most global institution in the world, with the fact that the nation state wanted to conserve its own authority? It didn't want authority going to global institutions. The sharpest um, uh, conflicts were over education. Right. Very quickly, it became clear that one of the main jobs of a nation state in Germany and Italy, in France, in the United States, even in Britain, uh, in Brazil, in Argentina, one of the main jobs of a nation state in the 19th century is to control the education of its young people. Hmm. Because you want to control the education of young people to prepare future citizens, future right. leaders in the nation state. You want to make sure that they're loyal and that they're patriotic and that they believe in the nation state. Of course, the largest system of schools across Europe and North America uh, was Catholic. And so that was an immediate point of tension. Should there be funding for Catholic schools? Should they be allowed? Um, What kind of citizens or patriots will we develop uh, in the context of Catholic education? 
Catholics, on the other hand, are saying, wait a second, the nation state isn't our ultimate authority, it's the church. And there should be a role for the church in these new nation states. And some more liberal Catholics are trying to find a, a middle ground, and, and more conservative ultramontane Catholics like Pius IX are not really interested in a middle ground. <laughs> um, and so there's real tension over education, the role of religious orders, which are global by definition, uh, within the nation state, and a range of other topics. And so there, uh, one of the great themes of 19th century global history, you know, along with, let's say, in new technology like the telegraph and, and the, the train, and along with the formation of nation states, is conflict between nation states and Catholics. It's one of the great themes of the era, and so I do talk about that quite a bit in the book. Uh, when I was raised, uh, 1950s and into the early 60s anyways, um, I can remember as a Catholic kid, um, you know, always saying that, you know, I'm, I'm an American, uh, and, yeah. and feeling as though there was no, uh, no attention at all between the church uh, and the nation. Uh, now, I, I, I look back at myself then, and I say, oh, I didn't realize I didn't realize what was going on, but but how did people prove? How, how did citizens then prove that they were good patriots to secular rulers? In other words, did they have to did they have to uh, betray the church in some way? Did they have to uh, acknowledge that the state could usurp uh, the church's uh, teaching or functions in some way? Well, I mean, what we know now is that when you were a kid in the 50s and early 60s was the high point of the idea that there was no tension between Catholics yeah. and the American nation state. Right, right. You might have felt differently if you were in a different country, right? If you were in the Soviet Union, you knew you couldn't be a Catholic, right? right? Because right. there was re attacks on religious freedom there, very significant attacks, or in communist China. But in the United States, they seemed to blend perfectly. And I don't know if you remember how old you are, but if you remember as a kid, John Kennedy's election in 1960, yeah. that seemed a, a, a symbol of the fact that Catholics were fully American and Absolutely. had no apologies to make. <laughs> yep. And... Um, Yet, of course, that came after one of the things that really binds people to nation-states, which is a big war. Mm. Uh, it came after World War II when Catholics served in the war as much or more than anybody else. And so, it would have, and Catholic chaplains were an important part of the chaplaincy, and, and Catholic leaders endorsed the war against Hitler's Germany and, and fascist Japan. And so it would have seemed extraordinary to try and say, oh, there's some divide between Catholics and the nation state. I do think we're at a somewhat different moment now. Mm -hmm. um, not entirely different, but somewhat different. Uh, there's more skepticism on both left and right. Uh, about the nation-state, and, right. and that's not always good, I think. Uh, but that was at a high point in the United States of a kind of alliance between Catholicism and the nation-state. So the, the nation, uh, if, if you're willing to shed your blood for the nation, the nation's going to have a hard time thinking poorly of you. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Wars, historians often say this, I think it's true, wars strengthen the state, you know, uh, and um, kind of almost naturally, uh, unless there's massive dissent, as there was in Vietnam. That, that ends up playing out differently. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, the church uh, developed 
many institutions, hospitals and schools and orphanages, and they were providing so, what we today would call social services mm-hmm. before the state became the actor uh, of first recourse uh, here. Did this become a point of tension between the church and the state, or did it help, uh, you know, did it lead to fruitful partnership? Yeah, both. Uh, one thing I always say when talking about this topic is to remind ourselves that this vast network of Catholic schools, orphanages, hospitals, charities like Catholic Charities, all kinds of other clubs and associations, that vast network, the primary movers of it were women religious or nuns. Yeah, that's right. And so it's just worth remembering that's kind of how it was built in 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 most of Europe and in North America. Sometimes in, as they used to say, missionary countries as well. Uh, and as the number of women religious declined, so too did some of the Catholic capacities sustain those institutions. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes there was cooperation. Um, I grew up in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, and the first hospital in Sioux Falls, uh, one of the first two hospitals, was a Catholic hospital. And the community, which was overwhelmingly Protestant, eagerly welcomed it. Yeah. You know, they saw this as an advantage and a wonderful thing. Other times there was real conflict. I mentioned conflict over the schools. That could be pretty intense. Um, And I talk about that a little bit in the book and uh, just the really fierce debates over public funding for Catholic schools. And sometimes there were violent clashes and all that kind of thing. It's still a point of tension in the United States. I mean, it's still a point of tension in the United States. Many many states have Blaine amendments. Um, Yep, yep. And those came about in that late 19th century, when states were trying to say, no, 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 we have control over education. Um, So very very significant amount of contention there. A lot of contention, interestingly, around orphanages. Hmm. Because the the point of dispute was, uh, if the state ran the orphanage, they often didn't care what religion the parents were who would adopt children from the orphanage. So if a Catholic mother dropped off a child that she felt she couldn't support to an orphanage, which went in, in an era of no social services was disturbingly common, uh, the state-run orphanages didn't worry about was this child be raised as Catholic. Catholic orphanages, of course, did. Yeah. Uh, and they might take children from all families, but they would make sure that Catholic children would be raised in Catholic families. And that became a huge point of dispute in cities like New York. Hmm. Uh, And that's one reason women religious especially entered the world of orphanages. Interesting. Uh, So it's a mixture of cooperation. We want to not say it was all conflict, but then there was also conflict. Uh, We hear a lot in America over the last 30 years of culture wars. what was the culture comp of Bismarck? Uh, describe, how does it compare with what we see here in the United States? Well, uh, you know, Kulturkampf stands for culture war, you know, uh, in German, and it was pretty intense, uh, more intense than what we've seen in the United States yeah. in the last 30 years, that's even though right. that's been intense, too. Um, and Bismarck was one of these 19th century nationalist leaders, like uh, Garibaldi in Italy and, and, and like others uh, in both Europe and Latin America, who saw Catholicism as a threat. By the way, I'd put U.S. Grant, President Grant, in that category, too. Oh, okay. Worried about, worried about Catholic influence. 
And Bismarck actually thought it could destroy the newly united Germany. Germany really only becomes a united country in 1870. And and Prussia is united with the Rhineland. And the Rhineland and, and Bavaria were overwhelmingly Catholic. And he's worried that an international Catholic church, which just declared its pope infallible, has all these religious orders, has vast networks of Catholic schools, is going to be impossible for him to control. So he basically closes all the Catholic schools. He forces members of most men's religious orders, especially the Jesuits, we thought were conniving leaders uh, of resistance, but also some women religious, to leave the country. <coughs> now, ironically, they go to other countries, including the United States, and build Catholic schools there. Um, and, uh, you know, kind of wages a, a persecution campaign against seminaries and Catholic churches and organizations and says they're not capable of training good Germans, patriotic Germans. Their highest allegiance is always to this foreign power in Rome. We have no conflict, he would say, with German Catholicism, but their real allegiance is to Rome. Yeah. Uh, Bismarck. This becomes politically, at first it's very popular, especially among liberals in Germany, but then it becomes unpopular as the intensity of it grows. And Bismarck finally, you know, he imprisons, I think, 12 bishops uh, uh, and a lot of Catholic leaders and finally decides he's going to back off. And and by the 1880s, with the somewhat intermediary work of Pope Leo XIII, they come to a more of an agreement and actually he turns his attention to trying to fight socialism. Okay. So a big cultural struggle in Germany in the late 19th century. Okay. Uh, if you hold it there, uh, Dr. McGreevy, we'll come back and continue the conversation. I'm curious about the Papal States. Underwritten in part by the following nonprofit. Do you have an insurance plan that pays for everything, even things you don't believe in? There are options. You can join Solidarity HealthShare, a faith-based health-sharing community. Plus, Solidarity HealthShare can save you money with prices starting as low as $384 a month for families. Call to see how much you can save. 844-398-9399. That's 844-398-9399. Cresta in the Afternoon is underwritten by the following nonprofit organization. Real Estate for Life. Buying or selling your home or business property? Real Estate for Life can connect you with one of 1,400 pro-life real estate agents around the world. When Real Estate for Life receives a referral fee, they donate 70% to Ave Maria Radio and Human Life International. More information at realestateforlife.org or 877-LIFE-US-1. That's realestateforlife.org. Support for this Ave Maria Radio program comes in part by the non-for-profit St. Anthony Services. Are you shopping for mortgage products, Catholic investing, Catholic health, real estate, or estate planning? StAnthonyServices.org can help you find a Catholic professional for these needs. They regularly connect faithful citizens with faith-based professionals that share our Christian values. More information at StAnthonyServices.org or 877-LIFE-US-1. Maybe you've been hearing a lot about the need to make a spiritual communion while participating from home in a live-streamed or broadcast Mass. Maybe you've even prayed the prayer of spiritual communion. Spiritual communion is a concept that goes all the way back to the 4th century. It flourished in the Eastern Church and gradually moved West. Spiritual communion stresses the transcendence of God, where we unite our desires, intentions, and loves with the holy sacrifice of the Mass and the consecration of the Eucharist at the altar. 
Jesus, I embrace you and unite myself wholly to you. Father Benedict Rochelle. I must tell you that from what I observe from very young people, all of these blasphemers, all of these mockers are in for a tough time. Because the devil bites his own tail. And I find among young people a growing reverence and longing for God. I find a decline in the cynicism and skepticism around. Because it had to destroy itself. No one can live on being an enemy of God. It's too crazy. It's too absurd. It's too dark. It's too bleak. God is beautiful. God is holy. Why in the world mock God? The people you know and trust are on EWTN. Catholic Connection with Teresa Tomio. There's so many issues that need to be discussed when we're looking at this continuing problem of mass shootings. At the heart of it is what's going on with the human person, though. Father John Mercado brings up deaths of despair in great detail in his beautiful Rescue Project series. Or so many young people now, or with that survey pre-COVID, were talking about how desperate they felt, how lonely they felt, how isolated they felt, how suicidal they felt. And then we had a recent survey come out from the CDC looking at a similar case with young girls. And this feeling of desperation and loneliness that despite everything they had access to and what they could do with their bodies, this so-called freedom, the world's version of freedom that's shoved down our throats every single day, they're still not happy. Catholic Connections, Teresa Tomio. Weekdays, 9 a.m. Eastern on EWTN Radio. The best. 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 Of Cresta in the Afternoon Countdown. Number one. 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 Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. With me is Dr. John McGreevy, Provost and Professor of History at the University of Notre Dame and author of Catholicism, a global history from the French Revolution to Pope Francis. I I have to say, I've never never really understood why the papal states were so important and why 19th century popes kind of saw their legitimacy uh, as somehow tied to the papal states. Can you sort that out for me? Yeah, you know, I think the basic answer is, remember how old the papal states were in some form or another that existed since the medieval period. Mm-hmm. And I mentioned when I talked about ultramontanism, the desire that the Catholic Church be independent, that the Pope also be independent of control by secular rulers. Well, their belief was the papal states enabled that. And you need to be a ruler just like everybody else. Okay. And so just like there are kings and queens ruling most of Europe, in the 18th century, the Pope was a, a kind of monarch. You know, with with complete control, and of course elected by the cardinals, so that's a different sort of thing. But but also a monarch, and so you needed to have territories and revenue and an army. Remember, there was a papal army, yeah. even a decrepit papal navy for a period of time. Well, I mean, it was a class um, C state. I mean, it wasn't. <laughs> yeah, very much a class C state, and very very badly run. Yeah, even sympathetic Catholics said it was run in a deeply corrupt manner. 
and not effectively. And, you know, famously, they got the railroad pretty late to the papal states and everything else. That was the belief. Um, and in an era when, again, many Catholic leaders, and certainly Pius IX, had deep suspicions of secular states, they wanted their own state. They thought they needed it to keep their autonomy. Because yeah. how are they going to protect themselves, okay. they thought, if the Italian army encircles them in Rome, and, and how are they going to be able to rule a global church? Yeah. Now, it turned out, popes became stronger <laughs> once they lost the I know. states. Far stronger. They became viewed not as political leaders, but as moral leaders. Right. And that gave them much greater weight. And as it turned out also... At the exact moment of the loss of the papal states, there's a kind of communications revolution. If you were an ordinary Catholic in the 18th century, you had no idea what the pope looked like. Right, right. And you were vaguely aware of a pope in Rome, but it wasn't any deep understanding of that. And maybe your local bishop you understood, but your church was your local parish and the rituals and devotions and clergy and nuns in that parish. Late 19th century, even though the papacy has lost the papal states in Italy, you have photographs, and you have soon newsreels, and you have long newspaper articles and all kinds of documentation about the pope as the spiritual leader of the world's Catholics. (laughs) And we have great evidence, some of which I cite in the book, of people in rural Ireland and rural Argentina knowing who the Pope was yeah. and being proud to be associated with them. And so the uh, many the Popes bitterly fought against the loss of the Papal States in the 19th century, and in fact, it was exactly what they needed. <laughs> Could Pius IX have ever imagined uh, uh, John Paul II's uh, international prestige as a moral authority? No, I think it would have been hard, um, yeah. because John Paul II, you know, we, was of course a controversial figure, but 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 if you think about the John Paul II um, going to Poland in 1979 <laughs> and helping right. cause the collapse of communism there, uh, I don't think he could have ever imagined it. Yeah. Remember, no pope left Rome between 1870 and really 1962. Wow, no one wow. left Rome. Well, let me let me jump forward here because I, I want to make sure we get to deal with the Second Vatican Council. Um, it, it, it's momentous, it's disruptive. You see it as somewhat parallel to the French Revolution in terms of it being momentous and disruptive. But let me ask, did anyone anticipate, this? two related questions, did anyone anticipate the internal confusion that would follow the Second Vatican Council? And then did the reforms of the Second Vatican Council cause the subsequent decline in Catholic practice, or did those reforms actually limit the effect yeah. On the first question, no, no one anticipated the confusion after the council. And that's because no one anticipated the confusion of the 1960s. Yeah. Okay. So what we're really talking about here is not Catholicism in Africa so much, although it has impact there too, significant impact. But think about North America and Western Europe and all the things that are happening by the late 1960s, the intense reaction against the Vietnam War, profoundly changing ideas of gender roles. This is the moment when women especially are moving into the paid labor force in record numbers. Uh, A sexual revolution 
you know, uh, that moves faster and quicker than you could have really predicted. Mm -hmm. And in 1962, you know, couples living outside of marriage together, pretty scandalous, not just in religious circles, but just generally. That wasn't something that was plausible. In 1972, that's really changed. Yeah. Um, So very fast-moving cultural changes that deeply affected Catholic life. It's the simultaneous nature of the council intersecting with that that causes the turmoil. And, you know, we, we, we couldn't have predicted, I don't think, um, you know, the, the pretty significant resignation of priests, which starts before the council, but accelerates after the council. We couldn't have predicted the astonishing level of resignation of women religious. Yeah. And and then the reluctance of young Catholic women to join religious orders. P- quite profound change in a decade after the Council. I could go on. So lots of very significant changes within the Church that intersect with changes in the culture. On the second question, did the reforms of the Council cause the decline in Catholic practice or did they limit its effect? I actually put that question in the book, and I don't know if it's a great question. One of the reviewers said, oh, that's a badly posed question. My own view is uh, it's simple-minded to say, oh, the cause, the council caused the decline in Catholic practice. Right. Because most of the evidence we have of a decline in Catholic practice starts before the council. Yep, yep. It's really starting in the 1950s. We can see it now, even if it wasn't as evident then. Um, So there's a longer story to be told there about greater affluence, about less hostility to Catholicism in the culture, um, about a sense that those 19th century pious forms that were so successful in many ways were starting to lose their potency, their cultural potency. Mm -hmm. Um, All that I think is true. And I think if there hadn't been a council, a council that declares religious freedom is a right. Mm-hmm. A council that reconciles Catholics and Jews in yep. a profound way. Yep. A council that says Catholics need to be open to, engaged in, and responsible for the modern world, not just building their own institutions. Right. I think it could have been considerably worse without a council. Mm-hmm. One piece of evidence for that is that the Catholic cultures that were the most deep and kind of intense and maybe um, too, uh, I'm searching for the word here, but all-encompassing are the ones that collapse the most quickly. Like, uh, example? So, so, like Quebec, okay. for example. Quebec moves from, it's perceived as, deeply Catholic culture in the late 50s to secular almost instantly wow. in the 1970s. The number of women religious, number of young women entering religious orders falls by 98% uh, in a decade. 98%. Wow. Almost to zero. And that was a very intense Catholic culture where the church held great political power. In a different way, the same thing I think happens a generation later in Ireland. Mm -hmm. It collapses quite quickly around questions of sex and gender and abortion and the church's political power. In a different way, again, you could even look at a city like Boston um, and see an American example. 
so that none of that says to me, oh, if we had just kept with the Latin Mass or we had just kept with respect for clergy or whatever that's perceived to have been lost in the 1960s, that would have been the answer. Right. I don't think so. I think we're still moving forward, trying to figure out what happened in the council and the 60s and 1970s, and trying to develop new forms of being church. Yeah, yeah. At the turn of the millennium, the public face of Catholicism might have been John Paul II or the recently departed Mother Teresa. They're both saints. They generated huge waves of goodwill. But in a few short years, the sexual abuse crisis squanders much of that goodwill. How widespread has been the abuse? And what were the internal failures that allowed for this devilish problem to remain so poorly handled for so long? Yeah, you know, historians are just getting involved in this question, so anything I say about it, I have to say, you know, it's kind of provisional, mm-hmm. um, and, and, and it's obviously a sensitive issue. But here's my view. Uh, how widespread was the abuse? In some ways, the abuse is less shocking than the cover-up. So what do we know about the abuse? You know, the best studies, including the CUNY study, think it's 3 to 5% or 3 to 7% in some places of clergy. We're talking about clerical sexual abuse here, primarily, um, or abusers of some type. And sometimes abusers, this could be of grown men, it could be of grown women. Obviously, the most horrifying examples are of young people. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not a that's not a, a heartening number, you know, three to seven percent. But maybe, given what we now know about the widespread, sadly, um, you know, widespread how widespread sexual abuse is. It might not be that different than in other institutions yeah. where grown-ups work with young people. Sure. So what we've learned about the Boy Scouts, what we've learned about other institutions, public schools, suggests that it's there as well. I'm not excusing it within Catholic culture. I'm just saying it might not be that different. I'm not persuaded, for example, that celibacy is a cause right. of right. sexual abuse. That said, why the cover-up? That does, I think, which was, I think, worse in the Catholic context than in many other contexts. It was more pervasive, it was more secretive, um, and that led to untold damage because abusers were able to commit abuse again. Yeah. Uh, that is a legacy of ultramontanism, uh, in my view. The veneration of the, of the, of the clergy, the... Um, coalescing a power uh, in the parish, you know, pastor, but then the bishop, and mm-hmm. then even the Vatican, yeah. the tendency of Catholics not to question authority. Um, so many of these sexual abuse counts talk, accounts talk about young people saying to their parents that they were being abused and their parents not believing them. Yeah, yeah. Um, No priest could do that uh, sort of answer. All of that was a consequence in some ways of that ultramontane respect for the papacy, focus on the church as an institution, um, kind of barricading yourself off from society, assuming that criticism means anti-Catholicism. Right. 
That's what's most interesting to me and tragic. Not the abuse itself, which is, of course, horrific and tragic in its initial manifestation, but the cover-up, which enables more abuse and I think is traceable to a particular Catholic culture and respect for authority that in some ways could be good, but in other ways was hugely destructive. John, thank you so much. Uh, Outstanding work. I appreciate it. Christ is the Answer with Father John Ricardo. Let us strive to know the Lord. Quick question to you and me right now. Is that what you and I are doing every single day? When you and I wake up every day, do we strive to know Jesus or not? In the Old Testament, in the same book of Hosea, a little bit later on, it's in chapter 14, the Lord says through the prophet, my people perish. Or in another translation, my people are being destroyed because of a lack of knowledge. Not a lack of data. We got tons of data. Not a lack of information. We got a lot of information. Not just about things that are happening in the world. We got a lot of data, a lot of knowledge, a lot of information about God. But not a lot of intimacy with God. Not a lot of relationship with God. Not a lot of friendship. That's the cry of God's heart. God wants to give himself to us in the incredible gift of friendship. And we're not taking advantage of it. Dr. Ray Garendi. What's the definition of frustration? Frustration is the difference between the way it is and the way you want it to be. It's hard to change the way it is. The way it is sometimes is other people, life, circumstances. The way you want it to be is in your power to change. You can close the gap between reality and what you want. The smaller that gap, the less your frustration. It is always easier to change oneself than to change reality. Frustration isn't always what happens out there. It is how we look at what happens out there. And thanks again for joining us today in this hour and over the last few days as we uh, counted down the top interviews of 2023. Once again, congrats going out to the our friends at Sacred Heart Radio in Cincinnati, our partners with us on the Sunrise Morning Show, celebrating 23 years with us at EWTN. And uh, if you want to follow up, you can go to AveMariaRadio.net. You can follow up on today's uh, interviews. We'll have Holly Ordway's book, Tolkien's Faith, available for you in the online store, in addition to uh, Dr. McGreevy's book, Catholicism, A Global History from French Revolution to Pope Francis. As we go off the air, Catholic Answers Live is ready to take your calls. We'll be back tomorrow with more on Crest in the Afternoon. Looking back at some other things, we'll do some uh, interviews in the next few days about some of the other top stories of the year. And also continue onward with another year of Crest in the Afternoon programming. It's January. It's a new year, a new start. Lots to talk about over the next 12 months. Happy 2024, everybody. We'll be back with more on tomorrow's Crest in the Afternoon. Have a great evening. Cresta in the Afternoon is a co-production of Ave Maria Radio and EWTN Radio and carried across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. To follow up on any of the guests or information presented on today's program, visit the Cresta Guest Archive at AveMariaRadio.net. That's A-V-E-M-A-R-I-A Radio.net. 
To listen to this or any other edition of Cresta in the Afternoon, visit the audio archives at AveMariaRadio.net. Or to order a CD of the program, call 734-930-4506 or email orders at AveMariaRadio.net. That's 734-930-4506 or orders at AveMariaRadio.net. Crest in the Afternoon is a co-production of Ave Maria Radio and EWTN Radio and carried across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network.